get back into our series in Matthew today. It's a joy and a pleasure to come back and look at God's Word. Let's bring together a little bit of context. We're in Matthew 13. the chapter speaks for itself is that Jesus is speaking in parables and he explains within this chapter why he's speaking in parables but the theme we're going to look at several we're going to look at all of his parables here but I think that they're connected together and there's a central thought that God's word is bringing to us in the life of Jesus that he wants us to understand in all of these parables. So we're going to look at the parable, but we're not going to take each parable in a message of its own. We're, we're going to see how they're connected and, and what it is that they have in common. He starts off with this parable of the sower. And we've if you're familiar with God's words, you've heard this in the other Gospels as well. We preach through it. And he's describing four types of soils and their response to the seed. And then he goes, he gives the parable without an explanation. And then the disciples come to him and ask him, why does he teach in these parables. So let's look at the parable first and then look at his explanation of why he's using the parables. This first one is the sower is sowing seed. He sows it in four separate places. The first place he sows it is along the path. He says birds come and they eat this up. They don't allow it to take root. They just grab it right away. And so none of that soil produces anything. The second place is on rocky soil or rocky ground. And it says it springs up immediately, but since it doesn't have any depth of soil, it becomes scorched when the sun rises and it withers away. The third place is it falls among thorns and the thorns grow up and choke out the seed. And again, it doesn't produce anything. And then that last and the fourth place is it, it's sown. It happens to land on good soil. And on this good soil, it takes root, it grows, and it produces fruit. And he leaves it there. When he gets alone, the disciples ask him a question privately. Why do you speak in parables? And he says this, verse 11 to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been given. He uses a you and a them statement. And he talks about the, these as secrets of the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about the kingdom in these parables. All of these parables have that in common. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. What does he mean by the kingdom of heaven? He explains it. Excuse me. He explains it as he goes. The kingdom of heaven is God's rule that he's going to take. God is God over heaven and earth. But right now, he has let earth go and do its thing. He's going to, he has sent his Savior. He's going to send his Savior back. And he's going to take 
leadership or rule back over earth and bring it under his dominion. And he says these are the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, he's telling some things. A secret in in the Bible is something that has been revealed but is not fully known yet. It's been hinted at, but it's not fully known or explained. And he says to you, to his disciples, to those who trusted in him, he's given them to know and to others he has not given to know. In other words, he's held truth He's he shielded truth from them, or he's shielded the explanation or the understanding of details and truth from them. Let me say, first of all, we need to understand this. This truth of God is not, receiving it is not based on intellectual ability. It's not based on how smart you are or how many degrees you have. Its base, as we'll see, is God enabling you to hear, to understand, enabling you to get it. He says it has been given to some and it has not been given to others. In other words, you can't get it on your own. It's given. It's God's ability. God enables an understanding of his truth. See, all truth comes from God. And there's some that is this truth, the spiritual truth, that is, is not available to those to whom God has not turned their hearts. But if you leave it at that, you would think, well, they don't get it because God doesn't want them to get it. And that's not it. He says, verse 13, This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In other words, the previous chapters help us understand this truth, that Jesus has been speaking his truth. All the way from chapter 4, he has gone out and been speaking about the kingdom. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's made known that God's kingdom is being revealed and is available to them. One of the statements he says quite often through this and and through other parables is, let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. And he says here, these are folks that have ears but can't hear, have eyes but can't see. Another way of saying it, they have ears to hear but they won't hear. You see, in in the previous chapters, we've seen Jesus do his wonderful works and miracles, and people see those miracles. There's no question about that Jesus did it and that they are, in fact, miracles, and yet they reject Jesus outright. He says, I've shown you, and you won't see. I've spoken to you, and you will not hear. This whole chapter is about the rejection of Jesus Christ. Jesus has revealed himself. The Gospel of John says in chapter 1, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. In other words, they rejected him. Why did they reject him? 
They saw miracles that they had never seen anyone do before. They knew that had to be of God when he, when, when, when Jesus uh, cast demons out of demonic people who were possessed with demons or oppressed by demons. The Pharisees said, well, he's doing that by the power of Satan. Jesus explained, that makes no sense at all. They saw the very works of God, and yet they wholeheartedly rejected Jesus for who he is. What we're seeing is the buildup of the rejection of Jesus. Now, we know where this is going to lead. It's going to lead right to the cross. It's going to lead to such a rejection that they no longer just don't hear him. They want to stop him and shut him up and put him to death, and they won't stop until they have accomplished that, and they do finally accomplish it. Now, we look back at it, and it looks in human eyes like a colossal failure that Jesus is trying to say something and trying to preach, but he's forbidden to doing that, and he's shut up, and he's put to death, and his life is ended. What we know in God's eyes is way much more than that, not a failure at all. This is exactly what God has used to accomplish his purpose. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. God was going to use this process of a rejected Savior who would be crucified on a cross, who would die for the sins of all who trust in him, and his death would pay for their salvation. Jesus is leading up to that. So he says to them, your hearts are dull. Your ears can barely hear. They have eyes that they have closed. They have rejected the message from God. Isn't that true today? That same thing is going on today. On what basis do people reject the truth of God? Oh, they use a lot of excuses. But God has cut through all those excuses and they have shown, he, he's revealed his son for who he is and yet his son is being rejected. But here's what he says in verse 16. This is the encouraging part. He's speaking to his disciples as he explains this parable, and he's explaining why he uses parable, parables. He says in 16, verse 16, But blessed are your eyes. In other words, these other ones have rejected this truth, but they've shut their eyes, but blessed are your eyes. The word blessed means something that God has done. <laughs> They're blessed because God has acted upon. God has moved. God's hand has come to rest on these individuals. Their eyes are blessed and they see. Your ears for they hear, he says. And so then he goes to explain. Verse 18 now, he explains this parable of the sower. He says, the one by the path, they illustrate the word that goes out. The seed is the word of God. 
the word of God, another word for that is the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom has been given. And he shows them in four, four situations or, or conditions that has been given in. And in three of those four, it has been utterly rejected. In the first one along the path, the evil one has come and snatched. He said the birds that came and eat the seed is equivalent to Satan coming and snatching the word out of the hearts. The words that have been sown in their heart. The other situation was on a rocky ground. He says that's equivalent to the seed that's been sown that people have an immediate response, but as soon as trouble comes, as soon as tribulation or persecution arises, they wither. They have, a, they have a, a, an initial response, but it doesn't last. It doesn't endure. It's just for a short time. It says immediately they fall away. The next response is those among thorns. It says the word is, is, is given them. They hear the word. But the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke the word out. And it becomes unfruitful. In all these cases, the word is given out. There's nothing wrong with the word. The seed is good seed. But it doesn't bring about uh, 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 fruit or, or produce because of the soil, the condition of the soil, it is rejected. Then there's that last case where it's sown on good ground, and he says that good soil is the one who hears God's word, understands, and indeed bears fruit or produces from their life the things of God. They show different, different um, uh, uh, yields of what they produce. Not everybody produces the same exact thing. He says some 100-fold, some 60, some 30-fold. But they all produce something. Next parable, the parable of the weeds. The parable of the weeds. I said the parable of the sower shows the overwhelming rejection of the gospel. Three or four, 75% in that parable hear the word and reject it. The seed is the word, is the gospel, and only on the 25% of that is the good soil that receives and produces fruit. In this parable of the weeds, he, show, he gives a parable of a, of a man who plants good seed in his field. And at night, it says, enemy comes and plants weeds. So as it grows up, his servants looked at it and said, hey, something's wrong here. He asked the, the master, didn't, we, didn't you have us plant good seed? I know it was good seed. He said, but now I see weeds. Where did the weeds come from? He says, the enemy has come and planted the weeds. So the servant says, well, do you want us to just pull the weeds out? We can yank them out right now. He said, no, no, don't do that. Let them grow together. And at the harvest, when it's fully grown, we'll take both the weeds and the good, good produce, and we'll take the weeds and we'll throw them out to be burned, and we'll take the good produce and use it. 
Later on, he explains this. Let's jump to verse 36 where he explains the parable of the weeds. He makes it real clear. <laughs> verse 38. No, verse 37. He says, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom, and the weeds are the sons of the evil one. In other words, the good seed is, is, is the ones who are the product of the gospel, the word of God, that, 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 that good seed produces those individuals, and the weeds are ones who are the product of Satan's seed and his produce. The enemy who sowed the, the, the bad seed or the weeds is the devil. Here's what's interesting. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. When he's talking about this gospel of the kingdom, he's not just talking about their day and age. He's talking about eternity. What's going to happen in eternity? What does it take to be a part of this kingdom that God rules over? How do you come into it, and what are the conditions of it? He's speaking in those ways. So he says, just as the weeds, verse 40, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. Haven't we said this over and over? Jesus talks more about judgment and hell and, and, and helps people understand what this gospel is all from. We tell the person, you, you must be born again. God wants to save you. And they say, saved from what? Exactly. You need to be saved from the judgment of God. Churches don't want to talk about it anymore. Preachers don't want to preach it anymore. But you cannot talk about the love of God unless you're going to also understand the judgment of God. And God is saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God has provided a savior to save individuals from the judgment of their sin. He's given a warning. He says God is going to send forth his angels at the end of the age and he's going to make a separation. He's going to put the weeds in one place. And he's going to put that which comes from the good seed in another. The weeds are going to be totally destroyed and burned in fire. He's talking about what hell and judgment is going to be like. And he's talking about what his kingdom is going to be like. It's going to be made up of those who received responded to his word and only those who received and responded to his word. He gives a couple other parables that speak about this kingdom as well. Let's start with the parable of the mustard seed. Verse 31 through 33. It's a simple parable mustard seed is one of the smallest, and it, yet it produces, he says, it grows into a tree where the birds find and make their nest in. They find their protection in. I think all of these parables 
We see the mustard seed. We're going to see the leaven. We're going to see the hidden treasure, the pearl, and the net. They all speak of something about God's kingdom that we need to understand. The mustard seed speaks of something that is produced from something that starts off small. And yet it makes a big splash or it produces a lot. When I was a kid, there was a commercial, I think it was about a, um, some kind of hair product, a gel or something. And it, they had a saying, a little dab will do you. A little dab would do you. You didn't need a lot, just a little bit to give you the total effect that you needed. And that's the whole thing of a mustard seed. It's just, it's just a small thing. It seems insignificant, and yet it is significant. I think there's two aspects of that, and sometimes it's hard to understand uh, where it's coming from. Is it a positive aspect of the gospel seems small and insignificant as Jesus came to earth, barely anybody paid attention to him, but what a big splash he made in the lives of those who trusted him. I don't think it's saying or suggesting that the whole world is going to be uh, 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 embrace the gospel and be saved. Obviously, he doesn't say that, and that's nowhere verified. Otherwhere, that's called universalism. Everybody's going to be saved, and and you you got nothing to worry about. Live whichever way you want to. At the end, we're all going to be all right. That's not the word of God. Nowhere is it teaching that in the word of God. God says in chapter 10, there's someone you should fear, not the one who can just harm the body, but the one who after he has control and has killed the body can also send the soul to hell. So the Bible speaks of hell. It is a real a condition and a real place. I think it could also speak of, and this next let me, let me just get to the, the, uh, the parable of the leaven. He says, because I think you can, you can see both things there. In the parable of the leaven, he says this in verse 33. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. We have understood leaven uh, like our yeast today, and you, you put the yeast in dough and it rises and it impacts the whole uh, 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 batch of, of dough that you have. And yet, here's the hard part. The leaven is often used in a negative sense in Scripture. In 1 Corinthians, I think it's 5, verse 6, Paul talks about a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It only takes a little bit to, 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 to ruin or to impact the whole lump. And so uh, here it's hard to get away from this thought that it, the kingdom of heaven is speaking of the condition of the world and that a little bit of wrong, a little bit of sin has an impact on the whole thing. I think that is clearly a part that's, that's being communicated here. I said 1 Corinthians 5, 6, also Galatians 5, 9, when he uses that phrase, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little sin can devastate a whole area. Uh, the Bible uses our speech and tongue, and James saying our tongues can be like a fire where a little bit of fire can impact or blaze or bring to harm a whole a forest. We understand that sin is ruining and destroying our, our, our world and our culture today, and it's going to continue to do that until it leavens the whole lump. 
Another aspect of the kingdom, though, is spoken of in this parable about the hidden treasure. Hidden treasure in verse 44 it says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Can you imagine in a field and you, 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 you're digging in a field? You don't own it. You're just working in this field or wandering through. You're digging it and out sprouts some oil. Or perhaps you find a precious stone, a diamond. You go, whoa, look what's here. And so he covers it up, doesn't tell anybody. He says, hey, you know what? Uh, I'm interested in buying all of that field right there. And that's what he does. He buys the whole field. And now that it's his, he has that hidden treasure. What does this speak of? This speaks of the great value and worth of our salvation. In other words, it's worth giving your all, trading in your whole life is worth that much, is what he's saying. This man saw something in that field, and he went and said, sold everything he had. He was totally in, totally invested. The kingdom of heaven is worth it. Today we are, are short-sighted looking at the things in our life. We run here and fro. We, we're doing all this stuff that doesn't really matter, and we have ignored the main thing, and that is the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ is what's going to change eternity. Sure, you need to eat tomorrow. Sure, you need a job. Sure, you need to wear clothing and have that provided for you. But what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? In perspective or in contrast to that, what do you lose if you give up this life that you might gain Christ? Your life is that great that you can't hand it over to live for Christ and live for eternity. This man saw the gospel. He saw the impact of this kingdom of God. It was so glorious in his mind. It took a great value that he was willing to give up and trade in everything for it. I think that's a message of the hidden treasure. And it's the same with the pearl of great price. It says here, in verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great price went and sold all that he had and bought it. Pearls are made by oysters. And the point here is very rare and very precious. This salvation that God is bringing to us is something that is rare and very precious and worth our full investment. I wonder sometimes, why do I have to sell this gospel? Why do I have to make it so that it's appealing to people? I don't have to make it anything. It is in its own. He said, just speak the truth of what the gospel is. And, and God will change the heart for people to say, you know what? It is absolutely insane and stupid to reject the gospel. That's what God's word is telling us. And we'll say that when God opens our eyes to see what can you exchange for that which God offers 
in his gospel. He says, when you finally realize what it is, you'll be willing to cash, all, cash in all the chips for God and for what he has to offer. Then he talks about this net. This net. In verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it to shore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, he's using another parable to talk about God's judgment and what's going to happen at the end of the age. There's going to be a distinction and a separation. He says at the end of the age, the angels will come out and separate. In other words, God is making a distinction between individuals. And God is not going to make a mistake or be fooled by cheap excuses. God sees us for who we are. He's going to separate the righteous from the unrighteous. Now, don't be fooled. You're not determined righteous because you did something good or right. You're determined righteous simply because you have trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior. He now stands in your place. And those who have rejected Christ will be thrown out, discarded, more properly, judged and condemned for all of eternity. Jesus is very clear in his teaching. He's very clear in what he's saying the gospel is about and what heaven is about. And he's amazed as we should be at the rejection of truth. And I think at the end of the chapter, this rejection is illustrated in a very amazing way. Let's skip down to verse, 50, verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his own, to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogues so that they were astonished. He said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works. You know, I'm going to tell you, they asked the right questions, but they came to the wrong conclusion. They asked, look at the questions they asked. Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Good question. Is not this the carpenter's son? Good question. The Bible answers that. No. No. He's not Joseph's son, but he's Mary's son. He's the son of God. He was born in a miraculous way. How did he come to be who he is? This is no ordinary person, no ordinary man. From his birth to every act that he did shows who he is. You can't afford to ignore him. Or they say, who is this dude? Where did he get this with? They acknowledge that he's on a whole nother level. And yet they ignore him. Where did he get this wisdom? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Yes. You got the right one. Don't we know his brothers? 
Aren't his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Here's the place where his brothers are actually named. More correctly, would be half-brothers because these would be the children of both Joseph and Mary. And Jesus is the child of Mary only. Matthew chapter 1 makes that very clear. How did it happen? Before they came together, it's the Holy Spirit who put the seed within Mary, allowing her to be born in, and him to be born in such a special way that no one has ever been born like that before. Well, who are his brothers? He had brothers there. Half-brothers, we know. He has sisters there, half-sisters. And the people knew them. In other words, this is a real individual. I like what they do here. They do what, what people can't, uh, what people are, uh, don't want to do today. People today want to ignite the very existence of Jesus. They said, no, we knew this real man existed. We knew his family. We knew his brothers. We knew his sisters. We know what town he, would keep, he grew up in. We knew what he did. We don't deny those things. And so they're asking the right question, who is this man? But they come to the wrong conclusion. It says in verse 37, they took offense at him. In other words, they rejected him for who he is. That's an awesome statement. We see this Jesus. We know where he came from. We have proof of, 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 his, of his upcoming. We have questions about where he came from because of what he's done. But that should lead us to the truth. But they reject him. They took offense at him. And Jesus' response kind of summarizes this whole chapter. A prophet is not without is not is not without honor except in his hometown, in his home household. He's saying this highlights the overwhelming rejection. And I might add the foolishness of rejecting Jesus Christ. Everyone who hears my voice today has no excuse because God's word is laid out and your rejection is not simply not believing or agreeing with facts. That's the excuse you use. This won't hold up in heaven. God says, here is my son. Listen to him. Examine him for who he is, what he claimed to be, what he actually did, and who I said that he is. And reject him at your own peril. It says because of that, he didn't do many other signs there. I like what it says. God is so gracious. It says in verse 39, verse 58, he did not do many mighty works there. In other words, he had done some. But he didn't keep on, he gave them enough evidence for them to believe, and they wholeheartedly rejected, and he left them in that rejection because of their unbelief. God's word is a message from God that tells us about his son. He presents his son. The question we should be asking is legitimate there who is this man, Jesus? What we should be asking God is, God, open my eyes to let me see Jesus for who he is. Impact my heart 
So that sinfulness not, may not be the, 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 the impulse that causes me to reject Jesus, but let me see him. Oh, Lord, let it be clear. Make him known to me. And God says, I will. I've given you my word. I've let you see. I put you in the midst of others who will be willing to lay their very lives down believing this truth. And here it is. I know when I was a little kid, I used to say, like some of these people say, well, Lord, wouldn't it be easier to believe if I just seen one miracle? Could you just show me one miracle? Could you just open my eyes to see something? And God says, I'll show you a whole bunch of them. Here they are right here. I've recorded them for you. I've recorded them for you. Take this, read it, search it. See if there's truth to what God is saying. And you'll be just like the people of that day. They can't deny any of the truth that was in front of them. It was there, it was plain, it was simple, it was straightforward. What was happening is they were blind. They refused to see. And so it is in our very day today. God is going to hold... He's going to hold us accountable for what it is we see but won't see. We hear but won't understand. We, our hearts have become dull and we won't perceive. God is going to hold us accountable for that. But then he says something that gives me great hope. He says to the disciples, but you, but you, you have heard and you are following me. You have seen me. In John, Jesus says to Thomas, Thomas, I know that you needed proof, and I gave you that proof. But blessed are those who won't see the same proof that you see, but yet will be fully convinced and trust in me. And God is calling us to be fully convinced and trust in his word. Father, we thank you for the evidence that you've given us today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth. The evidence that's been gathered there. We thank you for your faithful servants who will proclaim your truth. They're individuals, they're human beings. They, they, they are, are, are sinful yet redeemed uh, just like us. And yet we can see through this evidence, through your working, through the lives of your people, we can see your truth speak. And we're thankful for it, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that you allowed me to see your truth at an early age, that you, your Holy Spirit, opened my eyes, gave life to me, gave hearing to my ears that I might hear your word and respond to it. Now, Lord, I know today, even today, you're opening eyes and causing ears to hear by the preaching of your word. So I pray, Lord, that you would move in hearts today. Do that work that you have been doing for thousands of years now to make Jesus plain. We give you the glory when you save another one. We give you the glory when you do what only you can do. We give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask our leaders if they will come forward as we prepare for communion.